Yeah, here, we're fine. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to Get in the Garage. A music podcast. A music <laughs> podcast. The Mike, we have Mr. Jeff over there, hey, and hey. we have Mr. Luke over here. Uh, today, we're kind of looking forward to doing this uh, topic because it's one of our favorite bands. I think the three of us can mutually agree on that. Uh, Definitely. The Pink Floyd. Uh, so the idea was was we were assigned a certain section of the discography. Luke took the early stuff. Uh, so Piper at the Gates of Dawn to more more. Uh, I took uh, what metal through to uh, Dark Side, and then Jeff, I think, did a bit of Dark Side as well with me. But then also took over uh, what I uh, wish you were here, wish animals, were here animals and the wall. The wall. Yeah, so we're not going to um, be talking about anything after the dissolution of the four-piece band. Yeah, you know, in like 1979, when Richard Wright started becoming a a, a paid studio musician after getting yeah. kicked out of the band, <laughs> I think that's where we kind of are like, okay, Roger and, Waters, and then, take and, it easy. Yeah, and then David Gilmore's name is taken off the credits. Yeah, and it's, so it's like because uh, to be well. fair, I mean, you know, I want to start here at the beginning, but I pulled out the final cut. Richard Wright isn't even on the final cut. No, no, he doesn't play on it. No. And on the wall, he is uh, he's he's paid a uh, like a studio musician's rate. He's not technically in the band. They right. just basically kick him out and then hire him as a studio guy, as like a session guy. Yeah, which is pretty. You we'll, know, we'll we'll get into it. Yeah, we'll get into that. So start from the beginning, though, right? So Luke, what uh, I know that especially with you, like when it comes to Pink Floyd, your your preference almost is kind of like at least the first album, right? I mean, that's like one of your favorite of the out al- of the. I mean, okay, we all love Dark Side and so on, but I'm saying like yeah, um, it's one of your so, one of your favorites that first album. Yeah. So basically, let's like talk about like just a little groundwork. Pink Floyd um, really comes in as you know one of the kind of Londony, Cambridgey like um, blues bands. Um, the earliest recordings of Pink Floyd have them doing you know kind of blues R and B standards of the day. Yep. Slight psychedelic tinge. Um, really, um, it's the London underground that gets them really going, though. You know what I'm saying? Were so they. I don't know if I don't know if you know this on the top of your head, but were they one of those bands that was kind of around like the Marquee Club? Because I know that's where a lot of those bands, you know what I mean. So Clapton was Marquee. So that would be like around that kind of scene, but that would be the hierarchy of that scene. You know what I'm saying? So like that would be the more known bands. The Pink Floyd really get famous uh, out of a club called the UFO Club. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, So they were known as the T Set. Um, What was it? The Screaming. Uh, somethings. Uh, they also go by that name, but um, they play like there's a recorded set of them when they were known as the T set, playing some like R and B and bluesy stuff with some psychedelic, um, you know, influence. But really, they get taken off when they get a manager and they really start playing consistent dates at this club called the UFO Club. It's a very famous club. Um, a lot of psychedelic, um, travelers. I I would say uh yep. congregated there. Um, and that's where the band really started to form and to improvise long, long jams. Um, so basically the band is Sid Barrett, um, on guitar and vocals. You have Richard Wright on keyboards, Nick Mason on drums and, uh, 
Roger Waters on um, bass. So that's the forming of the band. Um, so basically, what happens when they get a manager? UFO Club. They start playing. Start kind of being a jam band of the psychedelic sort. Um, you have the people doing uh, the oil display in back of them. Oh, right, um, right, right, right. Psychedelic scenes, all that kind of stuff. Um, so what really happens though, when you really get song structures is when Pink Floyd gets a manager and they get a really a record deal. So you got hundreds of people showing up at the UFO club. They get a manager. There's a bidding war between Parlophone Records and EMI. EMI gets the bigger, so they go with them. Yep. Um, they get kind of unlimited studio time, but when they get in the studio, they realize they really don't have any songs, more of just jams. And so what ends what what happens here is you get Pipers at the Gates of Dawn, the debut album from Pink Floyd, and who steps up as main songwriter is Sid Barrett. Um, you tend to get the on the first album the songs are shorter and um, the themes are very psychedelic in style and sound so they yeah. kind of really condensed what they had going and brought it in so not not really anywhere near kind of the uh this sort of long form kind of thing that would happen later on in their career these are kind of like i mean i don't want to say more radio friendly but definitely more they're they're shorter so you know what i mean like they're, yeah it's so like they're, they're basically it's like psychedelic pop Right, so not included on the English version of the album, the hit single See Emily Play, which hit, I believe, number six in the UK charts, is basically the blueprint of of the album and Pink Floyd's um, method of writing psychedelic pop music that that was really meant to kind of turn you on to a different kind of vibration. Yeah. Um, That was really – and it's really one of the benchmark UK 1967 psychedelic songs of the era – um, and now if you aren't, um, if you really just know classic Pink Floyd, you wouldn't really know see Emily play. So like, when did you guys first hear of Sid Barrett Floyd? Because obviously we, we hear it definitely in America. Don't get that early psychedelic. Um, probably when I was like 12, they had a, they had a pretty good website at the time that had a lot of flash animation, which was <laughs> groundbreaking in like 2000, <laughs> 2001. Yeah. Um, and they had examples and I think full tracks available on there that were the tracks from Echoes, the greatest hits. So I heard like Astronomy Domine, See Emily Play, and is there a song about like bicycles? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, the it's bike. called Bicy- Bike. Yeah. Um, so those songs were part of that compilation. So I was able to hear those songs off their website back in like 2000, 2001. Were you at first shocked? Um, yeah, I would say I didn't like it compared to their later works. Yeah. It's kind of just a lot of heavy organ and monotone-ish single note type of singing or loopy doopy type of, yeah. you know, it's not really the thing that I'm drawn to musically, especially with Pink Floyd, which I I, I gravitate to their later spacier, bluesier, um, ethereal work rather than their like pounding on an organ. Yeah, it's very rigid, right? Yeah, Isn't it? Bah. It's like super English, super rigid. Yeah. Very talk like yeah. this. Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you for also pointing out the incredible Englishness of it. It's, oh, sung, right. it's sung in a British accent, mm-hmm. which was pretty rare at the time. Um, and to to talk to the the drivingness of it, it does drive. None of it really has that, uh, that sparsed out like drum sound, like the mm-hmm. great space in between drum fills that uh mason would would really be known for later yeah um it's very driving forward uh sounds like spy like a spy guitar a lot of the time mm. 
Yeah. Um, on the first record. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like Jeff said, uh, we have the you know the first album. Also, we talked about the great single CM we play, which is single only. Um, the debut single you also have is uh, Arnold Lang. Right. The, oh yeah, yeah. Right. So we about also the perverted man stealing panties off of uh, right. So drying uh, drying lines. So basically, you have kind of like a quirky. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, bike is about. It's a confession, really. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, bike is you know pretty nonsensical. Yeah, I have a bike. You can ride it if you like. It's got a basket of bell and rings and things to make it look good. Give yeah. it to you if I could, but I borrowed it. Yeah, it's very out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also have Scarecrow on the first record. Um, Gnome, a lot of just out there stuff. I really enjoy. It. I think it's a high watermark of British psychedelia. Um. The playing on it isn't like super great or anything. It's just a really high watermark, I think, of Baroque pop. And even on like Astronomy Donnelly, it has that great um, layered Pink Floyd, like um, hushed vocal yeah. that would like started. And there's yeah. there's there's yeah. things of it coming in. So, um, cool. but you know, so that's pretty much the first album. And to the it really flopped in the U.S. Really was a major impact in the U.K. As far as psychedelic music would go, influence well, yeah, just about everybody. Because uh, I kind of feel like that sort of like that stereotypical like maybe uh, you know stock footage that you would see of kind of you know uh, mid to late sixties kind of out before like the outfits get like super super colorful and everything like that when the th- you know what I mean like and they're Lace just like and velvet yeah you know and they're and they're kind of dancing in this club where you see like the crazy lights and like the and like Luke said it's the uh, the oil projector kind of vibe and all that stuff I mean I, I kind of feel like that Pink Floyd is really what's like the opening scene that. of Austin Powers <laughs> yes. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah like, right exactly that's what, the, that's, that's what, what the, it was yeah mm-hmm. and so what Pink Floyd suffered from here, and I think we, like if most people kind of know where we're going with the story, is uh, Sid, Sid Barrett kind of had something of a nervous, drug-induced breakdown. Yeah. Um, so at the time that this album was getting written, Pipers, um, heavy LSD experimentation begins mm-hmm. to happen. You have a lot of hangers-on. You have a lot of uh, drug people around. It's really of that era. Um, and this is the first era of psychedelics in heavy pop culture. Um and of this era too it was singles so if you look at pink floyd's release schedule 1967 into 68 it's like single single album single single album i mean i just said arnold lang a single only cmly play single only um apples and oranges then you get the full album of piper and the gates of dawn this isn't a year so they're heavy and they're doing shows and they're doing all this stuff so it's like a you know a single every six months album every you know whatever yeah. Um, so you got to stay in the charts to be relevant. So what happens on somebody that has already has uh, some kind of mental uh, illness or or something weighing on them is, um, I think Brian Wilson really suffered of this. Is that the the heavy album? You know what I mean. A lot of musicians take breaks now, take long years off. You know, like System of a Down just took like what ten years off in yeah. between records, something like that. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. And uh, the heavy drug use coped with the release schedule of the band made it so that Sid Barrett really suffered um, creatively creatively oh man that was hard for me to say and um, it's early and mentally so yeah you really get this breakdown on the second album sauce full of secrets um, I know you were uh, humming me the end track uh, jug band blues earlier mm. um, and this is really the where the band starts to change and fall apart at the same time. Um, and member David Gilmore is brought in. Yeah, so he's brought in 
school school friend of Sid Barrett. Yeah, correct. And, and um, like three years younger than everybody else. And I think I was. I think A Saucer Full of Secrets is the only Floyd album that has both David Gilmour and Sid Barrett on it. Very much a transition right. record, and, and the only song on that record to have all five of them is Set Controls to the Heart of the Sun. Yeah, which I like that song too. I mean, I really, I think it ha- this record's got some strong points on it, but it's definitely a mess. Um, yeah, and it's it's it it does sound like kind of a mess. It's, I mean, but so David Gilmore's brought in almost as um, school friend to Sid Barrett to kind of quell his um, uneasiness in the band. Um, and when David Gilmore comes in, he really is brought because Sid has really given up writing songs. He's given up playing on He's stage. Kind of just given up in general. Yeah. Um, and so basically by the end of this album is they just don't pick him up for gigs anymore. Um, but the record company still has strong belief in Sid Barrett as as the guy. He's the guy. Right. He wrote C. Emily Play, hit number six. We need to keep going. So we have the release single of Jug Band Blues. Got a promo video. Um, you know, the lyrics very clear, I'm not here. Um, many read it as a statement that he is not really there in life or in the band, but he is there you right. know um very strange song um weird arrangement um uh, but very great psychedelia and uh almost very tragic to see somebody spiral yeah, yeah. i mean he used to per- during this period when when gilmore was brought in sid barrett would like perform off stage with his back to the audience and stuff like that and you know these guys are between 19 and 24 years old at the time so I think it's a lot of weight on young people, especially young people who are heavily doing drugs and heavily partying yeah. and, you know, get a taste of fame and fortune coming from super humble backgrounds, like, you know, yeah. working class families. Um, so I think it was just a rest- classic rock and roll tale recipe of recipe for disaster. Yeah. For- and I think the thing people have to remember, too, is, is that like this entire generation, this includes the Stones the yard bird you know and all that their contemporaries like they're coming out of this like really dark post-world war ii oh, yeah. england you know i mean we've talked about it before they're kind of like that the you know they're kind of like this wandering lost generation you know i mean i've i've seen interviews where when uh they first got a hold of like i think it was like elvis or something in the uk how it how it almost seemed like uh, everything in England at the time was very black and white and how all of a sudden it was like they heard American rock and roll and they could see like color again or yeah. something. You know, it's like so it's kind of an interesting metaphor. Could you, but, like, uh, if you imagine think about that. if you chemically induced and then saw even more? Co- I mean, it's it, well, right, it, it, it right. Could That's be... what I mean. It's just like it just it, it was just blowing everyone's mind. You yeah. Know? It, like it, I, if I think of like pre psychedelic 60s in England, like I feel like it's just mothballs and tweed. <laughs> You know what I mean, yeah. and like tea, <laughs> and like I mean half the country and is university out and from World War Two, mm-hmm. right, right. Rubble. So, um, so yeah. So I just think that you know you you have to. T- what I'm trying to say is like you know you have to think about like you know where are they coming from, what are they coming out of, you know what I mean, and like the the of the long term effects of that kind of stuff, and then when you throw psychedelic drugs in the mix, that uh, no matter what, like some people will you know have an experience that's enlightening but i think a lot of other people probably started freaking out pretty bad yeah you know and especially when you mix in fame and you know pressure of like being this you know it's like hey you're pink floyd now like you're this band you know you have to kind of be this band 
You and know. at the time, too, when Sauceville Secrets is getting made and David Gilmore comes in, you have the band, I think, really struggling with the with with themselves to be honest about what what's happening in the situation and and I think it shows up in later works of theirs their regret of how how they treated the situation how they yeah. handled it oh yeah how, maybe what they didn't do you know what I mean yeah like um you know and I, I feel like that comes out later in their music but at this time it's all very passive and uh, like I was saying off mic before the way they kicked Sid Barrett out is all very English yeah yeah, it, yeah. They're like, it's, it's you very know, like was, stiff up a lip yeah they're like well maybe we just won't pick him up today you know yeah. that kind See of thing he shows up for the gig yeah yeah and of course, he didn't really. Or well, I or mean, he'd show up and he'd stand at the back of the auditorium and he'd just like glare at them. Yeah, yeah. So, like yeah. Some some say of psychosis. Yeah, so they really just kind of quietly, which is not the right way to do it. No, they quietly <laughs> no. forced him out. No, no, without no. Yeah, yeah. you know really much of a statement about it. They were writing songs for the next fifteen years about I, their guilt about it. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And I think it was either Wright or Mason lived with him at the time, and he'd like have to go God. play a gig, and he'd be like, "I'll be out for cigarettes." I'll be back, and he just went for like hours, and then he'd come back, and Sid Barrett'd be like, "Did you get those cigarettes?" And he's like, "Uh, yeah." <laughs> like just because he I'll be in my room, see if yeah, yeah. Did, you know he knew, but he didn't. You know what I mean? So really, this is yeah. falling apart. But if you want some some musical um, things on there that are worth their salt. Um, uh, set Controls of the Heart of the Sun really became a uh, hard staple in the band's set list up to uh, almost about the mid-70s. Um, great song. Really, I feel like the first classic Pink Floyd song um, in the canon that, that can... That, yeah, yeah, that would sound like them for the exactly. next decade. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Sustle Secrets is kind of um, like an Adam Hart Mother style... Um, Song Suite. Yeah, Song Suite. Um, it's not the best thing they ever did, but it's a good attempt. This album isn't a horrible listen. It's a good sense of what was happening psychedelically in 68 in the yeah, UK. I, I think if you know the context of the story of between the members and stuff, it makes sense. It's very much like it sounds like it's a transitional record. Yeah. It's like, you, you know, so it's, like I think it's the, the, the brushing off of the first the first thing of like British psychedelia and the brushing off of the Sid Bear era transitioning into a David Gilmore era, which is more guitar-based, yeah. more melodic-based. Right. Um, you know. But to be fair, the, the the rest of the members, considering the fact that, especially in the first album, that Sid Barrett was the principal songwriter, I mean, the other guys now, without Sid Barrett, definitely did like rise to the occasion. And, well, and, and they had to, and I feel like they parsed yeah. out their songwriting. That they figured out how to write songs over the next few albums. So yeah. into transitioning to the album more, which is a film soundtrack, I feel like they took that because it wasn't so much a studio need a, needs a single kind of thing. It was more of a maybe if we take this um, soundtrack, we'll have some time time will bide some time write, be able to figure out how to write some songs in a structure because it needs to be to a certain time length right yeah. so they would set it up that way I think it was really healthy for the band um, it's not so much the most original stuff there's more like derivative blues on it um, but they did figure out that nice vocal blend that you get with Gilmore, he's very soft in there. It, that gets more refined. Yeah, Gilmore and Richard Wright doing that. Those nice. Yeah, and you get Richard Wright really um, writing more um, mood pieces. Is that what? How yeah, would you say that? Yeah, less just sticking on the Farfisa organ and using different variety of keyboards. Yeah. Um, New take tech. A, take a step back to Sauce for Secrets. Just oh, one not- one notable fun fact. That was the f- the first album that the band worked with the art collective Hypnosis. For their album art. Oh, Correct. yeah. So the yeah, first yeah, yeah. album, which is the like kaleidoscopic picture of the band. Um, I don't know who t- did the photos, but every album 
from the second one, Saucer Full of Secrets, up through Animals was all done by Hypnosis. Uh, specifically, Storm Thurgeson gets a lot of credit, but I think other people did some of the photography for those albums. Hmm. Okay. Awesome. Nice. Yeah, and uh, great album. I mean, like just to touch on the album art, like very interesting. A lot of a lot of like weird like photo negatives or like super zoomed in pictures where you don't really know what they are until somebody tells you what the, what you're looking at. You know it what I mean? Kind of kind of get it. It kind of sets you in a psychedelic state before you even really listen to the right. album. It yeah. really sets you up for what you're about I think to it's listen to. The idea to. of like the alternate reality yeah. thing. You know how psychedelia psychedelic chemicals can kind of give you sort of like a different reality. You know, like that these album art covers were like very much kind of uh, reflective, reflective of, of that, that. yeah Did, um, have you ever watched the movie more i've never seen it I've i have not it. no i have not that might be one that, an interesting one that i might have to track down yeah. pretty soon because yeah. i i do tend to watch a lot of stuff like that hmm. but um, yeah, like a british art film yeah, yeah. i i yeah. really um i don't hate the album i like it say better than for me personally than like um uh metal but you know yeah it, I, yeah i do i think i mean it's got it's got its moments on it it definitely does. It's definitely like um, um, an exercise. I feel and something yeah. that's overlooked. It's not. Um, it's not a need to listen to. It's probably be on the back end of stuff. But um, good transition and a great thing to see David Gilmour transition as a songwriter, guitar player, and um, member of the band, and to also see like the sparsy drum fills come in, the right. the keyboard work. It, this is all like you get to see how basically. From more, oh, sorry, blowing up the mic. From uh, more on, you really almost are anticipating the release of Dark Side. I feel in a in a moment where we can look back and that's how we experience Pink Floyd. Yeah. I feel like it's a building towards the great, you know, magnum opus. Yeah, and more is cool because it's it's pretty much half the tracks are just instrumental tracks. So that was part of that songwriting process that you talked about about like really exploring what they actually want to be doing musically. So a lot of the tracks are like four minute instrumentals. Yeah. That later on they would find the you know the ability or the yeah. whatever to marry these very abstract spacey instrumentals and actually like put words and lyrics over. The it. thing about Pink Floyd that I think is interesting too is like they're such a slow burner of a band. Yeah. They're not like if you look at Zeppelin right, who just comes out of the gate with like an amazing first and second and third and fourth and fifth album. You know what I mean? Or like your Sabbaths, where they come out and it's just like money every time. You know, like Pink Floyd, you can see like the first album was definitely its own sound, but then the transition transitionary period, you can see like it was real, it's, real slow burner to finally build up to kind of like the Floyd that everybody now knows. You know what I mean? But like if you talk to the casual Pink Floyd listener. That, you know what I mean? Like uh, these albums, like A Saucer Full of Secrets, uh, More, Umaguma, even I'll throw Adam Howard Mother in there. You know, uh, I, those I think, kinds of albums, those middle albums, you know, I feel like there's not not a lot of people really know or have listened to those albums in their entirety. You know a, what I mean? A lot of them are challenging musically and they're, yeah. the shed of psychedelia and the progression of prog rock. Yeah, I, they're, they're weirdo albums for art school kids. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean. Right. Right. It's the avant-garde kind of idea. Yeah. That very. Yeah. Uh, so after um, uh, after more, we have Umaguma. Umaguma. Which so, one of my favorites? Yeah. Well, that's why, <laughs> I, that's why I was excited for you to talk about it because I know it's one of your favorites. Now, this is the first album where they switch. They're no longer on EMI, right? They're on Harvest. Correct. Uh, released in November of 1969. So, Mike. Yeah. What do you see this album as? 
Because, I mean, I see it as, obviously, another transition, but a different step in the transition, because you get half live, half. So you get to see where they are live with some of their old material and some of the stuff that had got worked in. Yeah, I mean, this, for me, this album, and I, I mean, I, I love Pink Floyd, but, like, for me, this album, I just never really connected with it. I oh, I thought you would have liked this one. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't like it. It's just that it's not really my go-to if I go Floyd, like... I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit later. I'm an Adam Hart mother metal obscured by clouds kind of guy. If I'm going to go if I'm going to go the Floyd direction, I mean similarly like with this album, yeah, like the the live stuff you know where they do, you know, uh like careful with that Axe Eugene, set the controls for the hardest son, a saucer full of secrets, you know, like that stuff. Like but the original stuff, yeah, I mean, I'm into, you know, I'm into it, I but think- like it never I don't know, it was like uh this is the best version of set controls to the heart of the sun. I think yeah. uh, in the live set, you really get an expanded version of it. The band sounds in high form. I think on the live stuff, careful that Axe Eugene is one of the best psychedelic freakouts in the middle. You get the screaming. It's not even like a psychedelic. It's more like a Yoko Ono deal, right? Because he, I mean, it's it's basically you know, um, uh, uh, the songs is like you know an axe murder kind of thing <laughs> yeah so in the middle of it there's a screaming freak out of an axe yeah, murder the lead vocals are attributed the the whispered phrase and screaming is roger waters and the scat the scat singing is david gilmore so that gives you a little taste of what that song is yeah like. careful with that axe eugene yeah um, um so yeah i think the live set really shows what they were with their material where they were as a band you know uh, on the live front the studio album for me kind of flops it kind of ends up being one of those things where they were one again experimenting how to write songs so they, yeah. i think this is this the one where they give all all the members um, an even song so they kind of get uh they each get one one thing on the album yeah. and i don't think it works out that well um you kind of end up getting like a really keyboard heavy thing and then you know like it's just it isn't really great um, I think they work better when they were working together. I and they think. went they went deep on the tape effects on yes, this album. Like absolutely. several small series, uh, several small species of furry animals grooving together with a pick or whatever that song is. Yes, several species <laughs> of furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving <laughs> with the pick. Yeah. So, but this is my thing is like, what's it, the fact that they went real like soundtrack heavy. I think that really helped them once they once you got to like the dark side period, just in the sense that like all of this stuff that you know, in other words, like they learned how to create an atmosphere, like they created a vibe, they could create this sort of like space, you know what I mean? And then for them to be able to kind of like hone it in and really like kind of like you know beam it into like okay, we're gonna do this thing, you know, that's where I that's why I think. Dark Side is so brilliant is because doing all the soundtracks and stuff, they learn how to give you this atmospheric quality. But then they're also like, you know, at that point, they're also pretty good songwriters, too. So they can incorporate like blues and all that stuff. You know, I mean, obviously, that's later. That's Dark Side. But yeah, Umaguma, like I said, I mean, the, the, the first half of it, the front half, the live stuff, I like it, of course. But the back half, I just I'm like, eh, you know, some noodling. It's a good album if you're putting on. Um, I think it. It, it, I mean, it, it kind of holds up to the era, um, but again, you know, just kind of more, more, a little noodly for for our my taste. Yeah, great, um, great album cover. Oh yeah, this is the one where I think it's pronounced Drost effect. It's where you have like the picture of the band, and then within that picture is another picture of the band, and they're all now in different 
positions or positions that the other ones were in the first one. And then yeah. there's a third picture. So it's just, it's a very interesting album cover. Yeah, yeah pictures within pictures. <laughs> also, like a, a great gatefold where they're all sitting out on the, um, or it's at the back cover where they're sitting out on the runway with all the gear in a triangle. Oh, with the gods. Uh, yeah, 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 big, yeah. Yeah, all the big That's amps. also a great picture. Yeah. Great um, great album art. Good good shout out on the album arts. So moving Jeffrey. forward into the era that I, I kind of covered. Uh, so that album was released in 69. The following year, uh, October 1970, uh, we have, again, on Harvest, uh, Adam Hart Mother. Uh, the iconic cover is The Cow. Mike really loves this record. Oh. I'm not as as into it. This is this is this might be one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums. Uh, more specifically, just the actual song Adam Hart the Adam Hart Mother Suite. Uh, I've heard in interviews that David Gilmore absolutely hated that song, and that actually all, pretty much all the band members hated that song. I want to say they only performed it live a small handful of times simply because you know if you listen to the track it's got horns it's got a choir it's got uh, there's so much going on towards the end of the suite you start getting like you know the tr- everything starts getting played like backwards too like there's a lot of like interesting stuff going on but at the same time if you listen to the Adam Hart Mother Suite and then say you move on to like metal um, the song echoes specifically, you see kind of like a similar arc in, in the way that they were writing these sort of like 20, 25 minutes sort of big mammoth song suites. Right. Uh, Adam Hart Mother um, comes in pretty, you know, pretty mellow initially and then comes in pretty strong featuring a lot of horns and stuff like that and then it quiets back down. Uh, a lot of keyboard work, a lot of vocalist work. There's a lot of this kind of like quiet, loud, quiet, loud that happens in the middle of the Adam Hart Mother Suite. You have kind of like this cool bluesy jam that features the David Gilmore guitar solo. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the entire song progresses uh, similarly, like quiet, loud, quiet, loud. And then obviously it switches around. So you get things pl- getting played backwards. There's like a crazy noise section some good kind of in the panning in the headphones yeah kind of in the back half of the song things get really weird and kind of psychedelic but then the thing i like about it is that this adam Hart mother suite is such like this psychedelic journey and then the following song you have fat old son which is a david gilmore original that's heavy acoustic guitar you get that really really sweet sort of lap steel kind of vibe in there too like which shows uh, that you know, although they can do kind of these like crazy psychedelic sort of song suites, they can also just write like this really nice, warm kind of three music. and a half minute, yeah, like really nice tune. Um, I, so I yeah, like, I love this album. <clears throat> this is the first one with like super strong, like normal songwriting. I feel as as much as it also has the giant suite in the back half. Yeah. Oh, also, I was I was incorrect. I'm sorry. The first side of Adam Hart Mother is the sweet. Then side two starts with the song If goes into Summer '68, and then Fat Old Son, and then Alan Psychedelic Breakfast. The namesake of the Connecticut-based jam band, The Breakfast, who started off in the mid 2000s as Psychedelic Breakfast. Tim oh no Paul way. Mary's band, great band. Check them out. Yeah, I'll have to check them out. Um, but yeah, Alan Psychedelic Breakfast to another interesting song where it's literally the the intro is a recording of a man sounds like he's cooking breakfast like <laughs> but it's cool because like you know I, it's one of those like there's this cool part where I, I what i'm imagining is like you know when you turn the when you turn the gas stove top on and you have to light a match 
to to light it. It's cool because they kind of like pair in. Like you hear them and you hear. I think you hear Mike music accompanied with it. It's just Mike likes it's the interesting. the. I think the the mundane psychedelicness of it, mm-hmm. which is how like you know what I mean. You take it so far out, and then like it's so far out that it's just a guy cooking breakfast. <laughs> do you, right, do you right, know what right, I mean? Right, yeah. The Minutemen have a song like this too, and I can't think of what it's called, but um, at the top of my head, but it's on Double Nickels on the Dime, and um, he brought uh Mike Watt brought the uh the song to D Boone, and D Boone went, man, this is like some no one's gonna understand what you're saying. You're like you're too far out. You're too ethereal, and he came back with a uh with a song, and he went, this is the most real real shit you've ever heard. This is the most real shit. Everybody knows this, and yeah. um. It was a note from the his landlord that the shower was leaking and that they needed to recock the tub because it was some real shit. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Instead of getting so far out, it's so normal. I just think like uh, the explorations in um, like the ordinary. Yes, or, or you know they went so far out in the extraordinary. Careful with the axe, Eugene. Yeah. That on the next album, it's just a guy cooking breakfast. It's some real real shit. Right. I don't know. That's the way I always see it. I I mean I like the yin and yang. I like the creative art schoolness of it like if if this was a art like jeff was saying earlier if this if they had an art school record i think this is it mostly for adam hart though it's what, such yeah, a such a crazy piece I, like if ambitious I can draw, if i can draw a comparison with the alan psychedelic breakfast it's kind of like when you hear miles davis and he talks about how he's like yeah you know i'm sitting in my uh my apartment and like i hear the noises of the city and that's music or i go see a basketball game and i hear the squeaking of the the sneakers that's music so i think it's a similar kind of outlook in that way where it's just kind of like there's sort of like this soundtrack to life that isn't necessarily individual notes you know what i mean it's it's all sound it's all you know it's all vibrations of air you know it's so it's like i don't know maybe it's a little far out to say but we're covering pink floyd so whatever it's all groovy baby no i get what you're saying yeah yeah so picking up what you're putting down so again adam hart mother not everyone's favorite one of my personal favorites yeah mike enjoys that record more than most people do yeah but again i've said it on the podcast before it was just especially the adam hart mother suite it was uh, i i was listening to to it heavily during a very specific part of my life i'm very emotionally attached to that album um it was kind of like it, I, like most people i think like you know you know sort of the hits on like the wall or dark side and stuff like that but uh when when i initially first started doing like okay roll up the sleeves let's really get into the pink floyd of course the first album that i bought was dark side but right thereafter i got adam hart mother and it was just like you know, it just it was just blowing my mind back then. Move you know? yeah, on like, over. Uh, so speaking of moving on, <laughs> uh, after this we have the album Metal, still on Harvest, released October 1971. Uh, and Jeff, oh, can I interject real fast? Absolutely. Jeff, Jeff, do you have anything to say in the album artwork for Metal? Um, yeah, it's a supposedly it's a picture of an ear underwater. Oh, furthermore, did you want to say anything about Adam Hart Mother? I'm sorry, I didn't even ask you if you. I, I did. Nah, I man. assumed you didn't. Yeah, that's. Fine. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not. I don't hate on it, but as far as their, you know, 15 albums or whatever, it's very middle of the pack for me. Do you find any standout tracks on that album though? Like, do you like Fat Old Son at least? Because like that's Fat more. That's more of a nice like singing, you know, kind of tune. Yeah, I mean, I just don't really go back to that. I I don't go back to pretty much any of their first six ish albums ever. No, huh? No, I mean it's just not. But with metal, you did say that metal was a was a, a pretty frequent listen for you, sort of early on in the Pink Floyd uh, exploration. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoy metal more, um, 
you know, I like the song Fearless. I like the song Pill of Winds, One yeah. of These Days. Um, even San Tropez, which a lot of people just write off as like a fluff song. Dun, I, I dun, enjoy that dun, one. Dun, 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 and ec- dun, dun. it has echoes on the end of it. Which what? is some prime, I think the most prime uh, pre-Dark Side song they ha- they have, I think. What, Echoes? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel the like the whole vibe. If you're talking of, classic Pink Floyd canon. Yeah, I feel like the whole vibe of 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 uh um of Echoes is very much like y- y- we'll we'll see that later in Dark Side of the Moon even though we have an album between Metal and Dark Side, Obscured by Clouds. Uh I definitely feel like Echoes is the first where you're like, "Oh, okay. I get it now. I I, I feel it now." Cuz it ha- same same thing like it starts off it, I I associate it a lot with Adam Har Mother cuz it starts off very quiet, you know, and then but then the build to the actual like verse part of the song is still very like it's got this sort of like flow, you know, overhead the albatross hangs motionless upon the air, you know, like it's that kind of like you know, it's yeah, Echoes does not remind me at all of Dark Side. It reminds me of like animals. Really? Yeah, I mean, because oh, it's like a 22 minute long song and it has mm. different um, high points and low points, different pieces kind of strung together. Yeah. I, I, Whereas Dark Side, Dark Side is like all five minute long. But I feel like the, I, the, the the sound though. That's what I mean. Like it remind like the sound of Dark Side. It, it, I feel it's it's associated. Maybe not necessarily in the songwriting sense, but like the like the vibe. Maybe that kind of like I look at it more as the the structure. I think of, of Echoes as a smaller Dark Side. Like if they had expanded Echoes out and made it a whole album. Hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Uh, but I think like the expanded piece as Dark Side is really works best. I think we all know as one yeah. solid listen. Mm. Um, so I think like I I think of it in that terms of yeah. like song structure, not so much like how the songs sound because there is some like you know more still some of the folk from uh, Gilmore that kind of gets left out by mid seventies Floyd completely. Yeah. I think like the the, well, the, I think the folk Waters tendencies and the. Over. Right, but um, so you kind of got a little more different style songs on it, but I definitely think Echoes as a piece works the best as like the long form, yeah, uh, song. It's kind of like the quotation. It's the the refined Adam Hart Mother Suite. I Mm -hmm. think it's the more it's the the more Pink Floyd sounding Adam Hart's Mother Suite. They they kind of drop the the real intense like horn section. You know what I mean? It's it's less like a classical piece and it's more like a long form prog rock band. song. Yeah, like pro yeah, prog. While well, we're talking about Echoes, band. you want to talk about the live at Pompeii which was done. I think it was recorded like 2 weeks before Metal was released. Yeah. Metal was recorded early in the year 1971, but then in October, yeah, I think like 2 weeks or whatever before Metal actually came out, they recorded at Pompeii. Yeah, I love I I I mean, I feel like in terms of uh, an accomplishment, I feel like the Pompeii thing was, I mean, like mission accomplished. You know what I mean? Like, uh, especially for taking on a song like Echoes to actually try and play it. Because it sort is of like a, a long... half hour long. Well, yeah, it's not only is it a long song, <laughs> well, you, but there's I mean... kind of a lot going on. There's a lot of like noise in the middle of it and stuff like that. And like any time, I think so... that's probably the most daunting thing about like, say, if you're in a band and you want to cover Pink Floyd the 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 long cuts nobody ever covers the long cuts because it's tough because like there's there's so much stuff that they there's so many sounds they created in studio that would be so difficult to recreate in a live setting i mean i think they pulled it off with echoes because i don't think echoes has as much pompeii too or i think you got you should tell them that they they played to an empty stadium in, in pompeii yeah um set up their whole live gear 
and played the thirty minute plus echoes and recorded it. So there's a video of it. Yeah, the good. Yeah. The I think the good tribute bands play the long stuff. You know, the Animals tracks mm-hmm. or Australian know, Pink Floyd, uh, Shining Crazy really Diamond, good, and and echoes. But yeah, to see four guys doing the tape. Tape tape effects manipulation, and you got like Richard Wright playing five different keyboards, and they got gongs, and yeah, it's just very, it's very cool to see four guys be able to cover the that music, right? Because even because there is footage of them doing the Adam Hart Mother Sweep, but I think they tried to do it very true to form, so they actually had like a full choir, they right. had a full orchestra, all that stuff. So to see everything kind of go down to bare bones, where it's just them. And po- the, the Pompeii show is cool because everyone knows it from the Echoes performance, but the other songs they did during that taping were very early Pink Floyd. Sauce Full of Secrets mm-hmm. and Careful with That Axe. Um, and so that's kind of cool, even though those songs only came out maybe two, three years earlier. It, it was like a completely different form of the band's sound because right. they, they just evolved so much from 1968 to 1971. Mm-hmm. So to hear them play those early songs is also cool. To I see. think yeah. I think the the Pompeii set in this album really ends up being the high watermark of the first era of Pink Floyd. Yeah. Would you really say that? I think like that concert film, this album, that it's a really a crowning achievement for the band. And the the visual of that movie is so striking. Yeah, um, it it goes along with their album covers in such a such a, a fascinating way. I think, and that, me and Mike saw yeah. it live in the movie theater. Do you remember that? Yeah, when uh, they, Mystic Disc uh, mm-hmm. put on the thing. Yeah, well, for, the, and then they a beat it. Remember, like he uh, he started it off by watching. It was just the echo. It wasn't the full set at Pompeii, but it was like Echoes, and then we watched David Gilmour. David Gilmour live in Pompeii, which that was the full production. That was like all the lighting right, and then like a full audience, and like the you know the whole the whole thing. But um, yeah, very cool to watch. Very very cool to watch. Um, so yeah, metal. I mean, I love metal, uh, but between metal and then the follow the follow up album Obscured by Clouds, I'm more of an Obscured by Clouds guy as well. Really, that's another album that is a soundtrack to a film. Um, I mean, there's definitely kind of like some, you know, I don't want to say filler songs, but it's a soundtrack. I'd say, so. I'd say filler. Yeah, but there's a couple of really good standout tracks for me. Um, I really, really like the uh, the opening track to that uh, to that album. Let me see. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, well, uh, yeah, Obscured by Clouds. Yeah, the the <laughs> the track Obscured by Clouds. Um, I think What's the Deal is like a lot of fun too. Mm-hmm. Like that's a fun tune. Um. Childhood's End is probably like one of my, probably one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs of all time. I like Stay. Stay, yeah, Stay is cool. Like, there's yeah, there's some good, there's some good cuts on that album. I mean, it definitely when you when you find out that it's a soundtrack for a film, like it makes sense. I mean, there's a lot more singing, say rather than say maybe some of the other, like say more more has some more instrumental heavy stuff that which is also a soundtrack, but Obscured by Clouds definitely has. Um, you know, has some actual singing and songwriting in it in, uh, in that way. Um, but yeah, I just think Childhood's End is another great tune that like would be foreshadowing into like Dark Side. Uh, just kind of that, like the groove, you know, like the groove that they have in that song, I feel like, you know, definitely translate or, you know, would kind of come out in in uh, the dark side stuff uh but that's what i mean like what's interesting is you can look at those couple of albums you can look at adam hart mother uh obscured by clouds metal 
Um, and when Dark Side happens, it makes sense. You know, you can see all these albums kind of like if you just threw them all in a blender collectively, and then you kind of squeeze them through like the the Roger Waters songwriting. Can I can I also give boom, you boom? There a, you have Dark Side. Another uh, like uh, thing to compare is almost like you have that middle period of Fleetwood Mac where they weren't the blues band with Peter Green anymore, and then right. they weren't right, Buckingham right, right, right. Nicks. They and uh, Danny Kirk Kirkwood Kirkwood. Um, uh, yeah. on guitar and some other people floating around in that middle period, and it kind of leaves you with a yeah, it's Fleetwood Mac, but uh, is it Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, yeah, trans- it's just transitional period, right? Yeah. yeah, right, right. So I think that those albums they're definitely like searching, trying to find their sound, and, and then, then Dark Side happens, and now you're like, okay, yep, it's it was an and too. I think Dark Side was seventy two, like it's just like right place, right time, yeah. Yeah, it's just like it's, let's just move on to dark side because, yeah. like, let's be real. Again, it, this is seventy three. Seventy three. Thank yeah. you. Um, I mean, this is the album. You know, in my opinion, this is the Pink Floyd album. I mean, I love. There's so many albums in their catalog that I love, but I think for me, this is like the magnum opus. You know, yeah, even right. though I think Roger Waters believed that the Wall was the magnum opus, but no, fuck. he thought the Final Cut was the magnum opus. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, the final cut's got some good cuts on it. Don't get me wrong, but I I just prefer either the straight David Gilmore songwriting or the David Gilmore with Roger Waters songwriting. But once things start getting to where it's Roger Waters is the principal songwriter, and we get the whole because that's the whole thing, right? Like leading up to here, Pink Floyd is a fairly successful band, but Dark Side of the Moon would be the album that launches them into like superstardom, I guess, if you want to call so it. So why why is Dark Side so good? Um, I think that there's, there, I mean, there's so many layers of uh, musically. It's a fantastic album. I think the recording is amazing. I think that they shout out to Alan Parsons, shout out to Alan Parsons. Uh, I think that they, at this point, they've really mastered kind of the in studio sort of sound effects thing, like the, the, the reverse, the taping and the, this and the, the you know, like all that kind of crazy stuff that you hear on dark side. I think it's. It's the first album where it's kind of done, I think, tastefully and not to the point where you're like you're just kind of going cross-eyed because you're like, all right, man, I've been listening to two and a half minutes of just this like cra- crazy noise. Like, I mean, you get that on Dark Side, but you're not upset about it where I feel like maybe with some of the earlier albums, you're kind of like, all right, I feel like this is kind of getting dragged on a little bit here. You know, like it's kind of like, all right. I- but Dark Side, I feel like they really, really honed it in. Like everything is really reduced down to like all the best aspects of this band, and it, I think it really shows on this record. I feel like the difference mainly is the over overarching theme of of like humanity, um, and you know working class people in the strife of 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 people. So I feel like it has a great sense of overall theme that is very recognizable. Um, there's, you know, very, it's very, I mean, we've talked, kind of talked about this before, but you know, money, human, you know, great, it's got death in it. It's got life, us and them, time, everything a human deals with on a subconscious level every day that we kind of try to push down. I feel like, um, all it's, all that stuff is talked about in dark side of the moon. So it's very, a very relatable record and almost makes it like that whole, like it's a one long kind of story overarching of, uh, of, uh, you know, same kind of theme. So I feel like that's why it's so successful. The other thing about it is, um, the, 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 the songs themselves, there's great pop songs in there. Um, 
in their four five, and instead of like you know what I mean, they're all strung together with with the same kind of uh, thread that makes it like it's almost like you make it a, a blanket, right? Like a patch blanket. Each one yeah. has its own thing. When you connect it with the same thread, it's going to make it even more you know more more powerful of a thing. Yeah, and this is one of the first concept albums we see as well. Like the idea that every song runs into. I don't the think net. it's. I don't think it's one of the first. I definitely wouldn't even place it in the like the that that close. I think it's one of the most successful. I think that. Would you say, well, so then? What would you say was maybe an earlier concept? Oh album? my God, Sergeant Pepper. There's a jillion. Oh yeah, yeah. I suppose so. There's a jillion before you reach seventy-three. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think this album is is successful, both you know musically and commercially, because it's not there. There's two songs. I think there's three songs. They're over five minutes on the album, and it's not just five tracks. It's ten tracks. So it could actually play on radio because, you know, five of the songs are three and a half minutes long or shorter. And I think this album contains more melody than their previous six, seven albums combined. Like, they're just catchier songs of this album. Yeah. Us and Them, Money, Time, Breathe. Yeah. All of them are are so much more singable and memorable, I think, than any of their earlier stuff. Definitely, I, I definitely. I think the, like I've been say, I stated this earlier, but the progression of the drumming, too, where it's all sparsed out, it's got mm. a lot of space in it. The drumming for me in Pink Floyd, yeah, when, gonna... you, when you get to Dark Side, it's so melodic with the, with the song. It works in it so well. Everything's sitting in a groove in a pocket. There's no fill that shouldn't be there. Yeah, it's yeah. you know what I mean. It, I was I wanted to ask you like as a drum because I feel like people sleep on Nick Mason a lot. Like, he's groovy. He's, he's His drum not... some of the best drum fills I've ever heard recorded. Yeah, drum fills all day. They're beautiful, Real tasteful, sparse. Oh my not, god, there's, there's some. No they're so tasteful. It. There's no. It's not. Oh, he's not overplaying. Great control. Yeah, and Great. he can hang back. That's the thing I like about him is that like he can very much just be like the percussion contribution to the song. He's not like, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, he just gives the framework of the of the rhythm and just does a fill when there's space to do a fill. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much all he does. Yeah, when he just serves the song. When yeah. there's space, yeah. when there's space, that's a great, you know what I mean? It's really, yeah. I, and I just think that that's, I mean, obviously too, like the striking artwork on it, it just makes it all so cohesive. Yeah, it I makes, mean, and the album cover, yeah, the album cover is so iconic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, it's the, the, pendulum style like the triangle right with the light passing through it like it's just so and the and the name of the album the dark side of the moon like there's such a and the then between that and the actual album artwork too like even if you had like I, I can't imagine like what it must have been like when that was new and you hadn't heard of you haven't actually listened to it when you first pick up the album without listening to it and you see it's called the dark side of the moon it's got this mysterious sort of you know album cover to it and stuff like i mean how exciting you know like just the idea of the dark side of the moon, it's like, it's, you know, it's just kind of, it, you know, it's far out. But the album itself, just so effective and just, uh, can just I, incredible. Can I also maybe just like say one more little thing about it? Because obviously this album's been talked about to death and we've talked about it on the show before. But I think the other thing that makes this album so successful is that maybe like when my my parents, you know, my dad showed me Pink Floyd, showed me Dark Side of the Moon, this album. It almost is a, is a wave to see because this album what i'm trying to say is is a lot of people won't tell you emotionally what life is all about mm. but they might think it, it might be a little bit easier to hand you a record to listen to yeah. yeah and it might make you see people a little bit differently i remember when i was a little kid 
and um, we were talking about we were on the playground. We we're talking about what our parents' favorite songs was. Maybe we were in first grade, and this kid Kevin Kevin Brown told me his his dad's favorite song was "Brick in the Wall," mm. and that I still remember it. Yeah. It, it because it was like we don't need no education. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was like, yeah. well, isn't he sending you to school? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think like that kind of framework of like you know it's hard to talk about death and it's hard to talk about time and yeah. all, what all you have on this earth and those kind of things and when you have somebody in your life that hands you that pink floyd record it might make you respect them or see their perspective a little bit differently it's almost like having a hard conversation without having it yeah and i think that that is really what keeps it going because it literally stands out not even as a pink floyd record but just as one of the best things that's ever been recorded but so, you know, I think that, you know, I don't know. Well said. Yeah. Also musically, I mean, for me, it's like there's none of the dated 60s organ sounds. You know that like Doors sounding mm-hmm. organ. Mm-hmm. This album is majority Hammond organ, which is like a thicker, lusher, more American sounding thing. And then Wurlitzer and Fender Rhodes, man, the, those electric keyboards on this album are just like... They're they, like the they best things date. I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, they didn't date it at all. They're still Claire Tory singing on "Great Gig in the Sky." Yeah, I was just gonna say that. I mean, Dick Perry oh. playing sax on "Money" and "Us and Them." I think are the tracks he plays on. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this was the first album I heard of theirs. I think, besides you know, like "Umbop" or whatever that album was, the Hanson. <laughs> besides the Hanson album and like the Space Jam soundtrack. This is the first album I bought with my own money. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe I asked for, for it for Christmas or something. Like, I specifically wanted this CD for Christmas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I used I played this thing to death. I would sit in my room. I'd be 13 years old, and I would just sit up there angry at my parents listening to this <laughs> with headphones on <laughs> for hours, yeah. hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, I mean, I would say I know every inch of this album. Yeah. And really, there's only one song that is kind of one of those freak out like deterrent type of tracks and that's on the run it's the second uh, second track yeah and it's just a bridge it's like a two minute like with all the crazy synthesizers going um but the rest of the album is just so melodic and so beautiful yeah um all right well that's dark side now the follow-up album well is well what's the follow-up tell me wish you were here and by this time the band is massively famous dark side the moon is a huge hit massively massively famous. yeah dark side i mean sold millions of albums that year year and a half um and then they went on a on a big tour to support it but dark side of the moon depending on what you know official sales certifications you read and all that it's either like the third highest selling album of all time or the fifth highest selling album of all time I heard a thing that was like Dark Side was still on the charts. Yeah, like 985 weeks in a row. Yeah, like it was <laughs> still on the charts crazy. when when uh, uh, when the wall came right. out. It was still right. on the charts. Like right. that's, I mean, come on, yeah. you know. Um, but I wish so you were it's here. a reason why it's one of the best right. albums. Right, right. But wish you were here. I think a a fantastic follow up album, uh, and this is where we get into Jeff's territory. Uh, I mean, we've all been talking about it, all the albums anyway, but um, Wish You Were Here. What do you, uh, I mean, in terms of like your, okay, we have Dark Side, obviously, but would you say, you know, Wish You Were Here, where does that kind of sit in terms of your, you know, your favorite, say, Floyd albums? Um, on certain certain days, I would say it's it's either my second or third favorite album. Right, yeah. Or like, you know, if I had Same. to go to Desert Island, it'd be definitely one of the three I would take with me. Yeah. 
Um, so this album was recorded at majority, if not all, at Abbey Road Studios. And this was their first album being recorded as now being the biggest band, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. the biggest band or one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, so they had a lot of pressure on them to follow up Dark Side of the Moon with something as um, as memorable and as iconic. And a lot of people didn't get it when it came out because it's five tracks long and it's, you know, a 15 minute track that's like parts one through five of, of Shine Crazy Diamond and then it's bookend on the other side with another 15 minute track yep. to finish that song out. Um, but it had the big hit Wish You Were Here, which you hear on, on radio all the time. Um, uh, Have a Cigar, which is their critique on music management and record labels and people trying to get rich off of their success. And as Welcome to, Welcome to the Machine, which is you know an organ and synthesizer just um craziness kind of just this doom and gloom type of song which may be about welcome to the machine in a way of you are now a product of a company good luck keep making money for us boys or it could be taken more as the kind of you know um psychological type of thing of now you're in the in the fast track of fame and good luck with that yeah so um and this album you know, it contains Shine Crazy Diamond, which is like one of the most beautiful things most people say about Pink Floyd's music. Um, you know, guitarists love to talk about the guitar tone on that song specifically. Um, the It has the keyboard, like horn type of things that sound really cool. And talk about space, man. That, that, that song is straight space. Yeah. It's like, it's silence with one or two notes at a time that just like come out like the sun rising it's 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 an incredible song and, and that I, song is about the you know about the state of sid barrett right and their guilt about kicking him out and not really treating him as a friend and not knowing how to cope with his mental illness and his um breakdowns and also wish you were here may also be about that as well you know depending on which biography you read it it's either roger waters kind of self-reflecting more about like being in the trappings of fame or it could be read as the another Sid Barrett based like kind of ode to him. Yeah, I'd say that this album especially with Shot on Your Crazy Diamond f- is is the it, it's you know it's the it's blatantly about Sid Barrett. You know what I mean? Like I think this is the first time we see a song that's like Sid Barrett is very very clearly the inspiration behind the song. Right. You know, kind and- of this oh no, what have we done to our friend kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, similarly, like you said, I mean, we, I mean, we both play guitar. I mean, all three of us really play guitar. You know, uh, yeah, just the uh, the the guitar tone in "Shine on Your Crazy Diamond" is incredible. And then even with the song, with the track "Wish You Were Here," you know, like the cool intro, how he's like, you know, he's going through the radio stations, and then he finds the track, and then you know, like really cool use of a twelve-string acoustic guitar. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I this this album for me is just incredible like i i absolutely adore this album the only song i'm not a huge fan of is probably the song welcome to the machine i feel like that that song uh would kind of foreshadow maybe what's to come with uh like say like the wall you know a little bit in terms of like this like this roger waters driven pink floyd that's really like heavily uh influenced by maybe his view on like sort of like politics and society and stuff like Mm -hmm. that way more on the political i think I think Gilmore kind of gives you this sort of introspective kind of vibe 
where Roger Waters kind of just basically just outwardly blatantly is just kind of like you're all cogs in the machine you know <laughs> like you're all, you know like I mean m- more so in the wall I think because the wall I think is like the big sort of political statement um but uh but yeah I just I, I don't know I, I absolutely love this album I love it I think Richard Wright delivers on it I think same thing Nick Mason as well like it's but now we're kind of starting to see uh, maybe a little bit more bare bones Floyd that I think you would definitely see in animals. I think animals is probably the most, I mean, there's still atmospheric qualities to animals, but I think that's probably the, like the reduced down the bare bones Floyd that you see. That's got not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of extra stuff on it that like, if you were to compare it to the earlier works, you know, but mm. I mean, what do you like? What, what are your, I, I think it's, it's for me, it's like my, la- it's like the last Floyd album for me. Um, that I really like get like crazy about and yeah. I, I like Um, I really like obviously how all the songs are again like one giant thing Um, I like mm-hmm. the the peaceness of it Um, I like how I like too how it's searching it doesn't it's kind of unsure of itself Um, it, like you know because what dark side just seems so sure of itself it seems like there's no pauses but lyrically which you were here seems questioning and confused and paranoid um and it has a lot of those kind of feelings on it and i really enjoy that um like welcome to the machine i really enjoy the synths on that it's very like kind of druggy and you know like the keyboard bends up and down um obviously i love shine shine you crazy diamond um it's one of the best pieces the band ever did it's great um it's really sad it's a really sad yeah. kind of song. Um, the saxophone solo in it is great. It's yeah, really Dick Perry again on sax. Amazing. I don't know. It really that album. It hit, that was like the I heard that album before I heard Dark Side of the Moon. And for me, I think mm. it's just a little little tender. I like it quite yeah. a bit. Also features um, besides Claire Tori on Great Gig of the Sky off of um, Dark Side of the Moon. It's it features the only other song that's sung by someone outside of the band, which is oh, yes. the song. Uh, have a cigar, have a which is sung by Roy Harper, who was an English folk singer who was friends with Led Zeppelin. They did a folk song that they retitled "Hats Off to Roy Harper," which I think is from Physical Graffiti. Um, <clears throat> so he came in to sing that because he was friends with the band and they were recording. He happened to be there, and I guess Roger Waters was originally going to sing it, but he had blown out his voice from singing "Shine Crazy Diamond." So they had Roy Harper sing the track, and then they liked the idea that it was like a character song where he's singing from the point of view mm. of like kind of like an evil money manager. And that's right. what the, that's what the song's pretty much about. So. Yeah. And I think that song, that song grooves really nice too. That's, you know, that like if I, I mean, obviously wish you were here was like, I'm pretty sure that was the single on the album, but I think have a cigar was another single as well. I mean, yeah, it's just funky. Shout out. You crazy diamond was too long to be a radio single, you know? So, um, uh, but yeah, so, then after that, we have. Then they did animals, animals which, which is super political, super I love social commentary. Animals. Probably one of my favorite Floyd uh, albums. Another another album like "Wish You Were Here," where it's five tracks, um, but in this case, it's kind of they invert it. Instead of two fifteen minute tracks bookending, it's like two two minute acoustic guitar tracks. Yeah, the pigs on the wings part one and two, um, and so it's pigs on the wing part one, dogs, pigs, sheep. And then Pigs on the Wing Part Two, and this song, this album is um, kind of a take on George L. Orwell's Animal Farm, where it's the satire of um, culture, 
using animals, using farm animals as the metaphors for how the different classes work. So you got the the dogs who in, in the Pink Floyd animals album, the dogs are the predators, possibly the people looking to take their money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the pigs are the ruthless people at the top of society. So politicians and the high social class and royalty. And then you have the mindless people, the sheep who, you know, are at the other animals will. Um, this album is one of the last Pink Floyd albums I actually ever listened to because I'm just not the biggest fan of Roger Waters voice. Yeah. Or I, or I, I hadn't been until my mid twenties and after dark side of the moon, like once Sid Barrett left, Roger Waters was kind of the head of Pink Floyd, the head songwriter and the head decision maker. But especially after the worldwide success of dark side of the moon, Roger Waters like turned into the egomaniacal douchebag yeah. rock star, you know, the, the stereotype. <laughs> and he started to order all his bandmates around and he started to tell them that their contributions weren't enough. And they didn't like their songs. I believe like, the quote is I am Pink Floyd. Right. He's a, I mean, <laughs> There's a reason why I've never listened to anything that Roger Waters has done after night after the wall because I have no interest in supporting someone who yeah destroyed one of my favorite bands like well in, right in a short right way of saying it. yeah and that that's that I think that was the kind of the cost of success which one's pink which one's pink well yeah right right Sid right Sid Barrett Sid yeah I mean let's be real Sid Barrett was is pink but I think Roger Waters Roger had Waters delusions pink. of grandeur. <laughs> Yeah, so animals. Well, not really delusions. So animals is is it's interesting because really Gilmore only sings on dogs, which was the only song he wrote on the album, and yeah. Even on that track, Roger Waters sings some of the lead on that track. So it's like ninety percent Roger Waters singing, which is not exactly my cup of tea. So it took me a while to really get into this album, but once I did, I was glad I really gave it a chance because dogs pigs and sheep are crazy songs they're all amazing songs and those are like mini song suites in themselves each of them yeah you know you have sheep you have the the fender Rhodes intro by rick wright which is you know like a two minute just beautiful electric keyboard um thing that segues into this rock and track you got pigs which has the driving cowbell beat and it has the the heil um what do they call it? The talk box, pig sounding oh, wow, guitar wow, solo. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you have dogs, which is kind of dogs sounded like their disco stuff on, on the wall. Cause it's a very driving beat, but then it like breaks down in the middle to this like spacious, slow thing. Yeah. Um, and then it comes back with the driving beat at the end. Um, and this album is also just kind of strange because Roger Waters only played guitar in one song, which is, I, I don't know. I, I I love his bass sound. That that P bass, just thick, yeah. simple, stay to the groove, stay to the roots, just support the rest of the sound. And instead, it's he only plays bass on Dogs, the David Gilmore track, and then David Gilmore plays bass on Sheep and Pigs, which is I don't know. Maybe just as like a teenager, as like a music quote unquote purist, you know, like just having my own thoughts about things. I was like, ah, well, fuck this album because like they aren't even playing their own instruments <laughs> or like or whatever. And but when I went and actually like really got into this album in my mid late twenties, I I love the bass stuff that yeah. David Gilmore plays on Pigs and on Sheep. It's it's kind of more interesting than anything Roger Waters played because it he plays like with a slight chorus effect or. I know one of the songs I know on pigs, it was a fretless bass. I'm not sure if sheep was a fretless bass. So it gives it this like kind of liquid 
almost out of tune kind of sound. Yeah. And he has more movement and he uses a pick instead of finger finger style a lot, like Roger Waters did sometimes. Um so just sonically I I love this album because I love it now because it's so yeah. different. But I it took me it took me fifteen years to listen to this album. Yeah, it took a while, yeah. yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Um, Maybe when Jeff's like eighty, he's gonna we're gonna be podcasting. He's gonna be like, "That's Sid Barrett." That's Sid <laughs> I'm gonna come full circle. Yeah, you're gonna come full circle. Sauce full of secrets is number one. I'm just be taking <laughs> three hits of acid every day like, <laughs> in my morning tea. Yeah, by then microdosing will probably be you know. Yeah, bro, it's gonna be legal. the water supply. It'll also, like I, I, I mean, I <laughs> no, it's fluoride. Bro. I'm fluoride a little, I was a little scared <laughs> off from the 15 minute tracks too. Right. Because like you gotta I have time. Yeah, and and you know. And yeah. this album, Animals, is such a it's such a dark album. Yeah, it's such an angry. Well, because <laughs> the angry thing is, too, I think we have. To, it's worth mentioning the fact that at this point, I'm pretty sure all the band members are at each other's throats. Oh, I'm sure. You know, especially because because like you know, moving on now when we get to the wall, like that the whole week, crazy thing about it is is like Richard Wright's kicked out of the band. He's on the wall, but at this point, he's kicked out of the band and he's being paid a studio musician wage. To basically just oh yeah, you want to get into the wall? Th- yeah, ju- well we'll t- we'll touch on it lightly. We have about ten minutes left, so I think you know we'll spend the next ten minutes just uh, talking on the wall. I mean, you know, production wise, I'm into it. I, I I think the way that like you were with animals, where it took you a while and you had to kind of go back to it to kind of appreciate it. I felt like that was kind of how I am with the wall. Um, I I still don't love the album. Um, I think it was very much significant. You know, um. I think it 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 kind of like it was it was kind of like a little you know it, it juiced up kind of Pink Floyd's popularity back again because I mean you know from the success of Dark Side Wish You Were Here great album Animals great album but when you're talking about like them kind of being put back up on this sort of like you know psychedelic pop, pop rock sort Prog. of uh, prog sort of uh, you know uh, uh, pantheon pedestal sort of th- pedestal thank you. Um, Definitely, I think, like, just the track, you know, like, another brick in the wall, like, that song itself, you know, like, just the catchy, the catchy chorus, you know, uh, it, we don't need, you know, it is like, a big album, thing. it's too big, comfortably numb, huge hit single, yeah, comfortably numb, another brick in the hey, wall part hey two, you. so yeah. some, 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 some background for people who don't know about the wall, so after the success of Dark Side, after the continued success of Animals, they released Animals, and the week that Animals was released, they went out on their first stadium tour so they weren't playing to 5,000 person 10,000 person venues anymore now they're playing to 50 to 70,000 yeah so the production becomes so humongous they're in a they're playing on a stage where uh, you know I've never been there but like they couldn't even hear themselves think when they're trying to play these especially the spacious oh yeah beautiful tranquil songs there's people screaming there's people saying off fireworks in the in the crowd um and so during the animals tour roger waters well the whole band was traveling separately in separate winnebago's they would park in a parking lot with the doors facing away from each other (laughs) they they did not like each other but they set out on this huge stadium tour roger waters was he spit at fans on their last date in montreal because they were being so loud in the front row that he and he was so angry that the 
that the spotlight guy was only catching his feet instead of his face, yeah. that he started going on a rant. He spit on these fans. At the end of the show, they played a second encore. David Gilmore stayed in the stayed where the soundboard was. He's like, fuck this shit. And they the band just played this slow 12-bar blues bullshit. And, and, and Roger Waters like, here's some music to leave to. Like, <laughs> fuck you. To the to the probably sixty five thousand people that yeah, were there, yeah. Um, and so after that tour, which was a successful tour, they put all their money or a lot of their money into venture capitalist uh, things and lost a lot of their money, and then they had to become tax exiles because they owed so so much money to the British government that all four members moved to different countries in Europe, and then Roger Waters. Kind of because he's like, oh, shit, we were hugely successful, and now we are, like, fucked. We're all broke, and what the fuck. They had to record, quote-unquote, had to record a follow-up and had to go tour it because they were broke, even though they hate each other. They they possibly never wanted to work with each other again. So he approached the band with two, two concepts. He said, I have <laughs> a 90-minute demo that is about someone going crazy from the trappings of fame, and I have other another choice is let's write a whole thing about a man's grappling with fidelity and matrimony and cheating and blah blah blah, blah. and they were like uh yeah let's do the former because we don't want to get into your love life man like, we <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. we don't want that heat so they recorded the wall and halfway through they uh richard wright was he was frustrated from the beginning because he up until that point all the albums have been attributed as produced by Pink Floyd. But in this case, Roger Waters said, well, it's my 90 minute demo. These are my songs. I'm, this is my shit. I'm the producer. I'm going to choose Bob Ezrin to work with, who was the producer of Alice Cooper stuff in the mid seventies, a very young wonderkind producer. And they worked acrimoniously together. Like Richard Wright would come to the studio. He didn't like Rod, Roger Waters or Bob Ezrin. So he would work with the, with the engineer at night when nobody else was there. And, Halfway through, Roger Waters said, well, hey, man, we give you a shot at being a co-producer and being a contributor, but like you aren't contributing shit to this album, so you're out of the band. And the rest of the band, because it was kind of Roger Waters' band at that time, kind of backed that up yeah. half-heartedly, and we're like, well, we love you, Rick, but you know, this is... Sorry, mate. The way all the, Sorry, all mate. very English. Sorry, yeah. mate. Um, the, the album, I mean, I think, I think Nick Mason plays on two songs. There's almost no, there's like three songs that have drum beats on this yeah. album. And Nick Mason only plays on two of them because Jeff Porcaro from Toto and Steely Dan played on the other one, Mother. Um, it has instrumentation by Michael Kamen, who at the time was like a 30, 31 year old classical composer and arranger who went on to be the conductor for San Francisco Orchestra and Ooh. Metallica's S&M. Oh, album. yeah, baby. Rock and, <laughs> rock and roll. Um, yeah. So this album had orchestral things. It had very little drum, drum tracks. It's a lot of just kind of like chords on a piano while Roger Waters sings over them. And it took me until my late 20s to get into this album. I liked, you know, I liked seven songs out of the 26 or whatever. But I didn't give this album a full shot until about seven, eight years ago because... yeah. I don't know. I just, again, I, like I loved the idea of the four piece Pink Floyd band and what they did in the mid seventies and early seventies. And for the fact that like one dude was basically like, no, this is my band now. And you can either like it or hit the bricks. Yeah. Just <laughs> never sit well with me. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> um, so this, and so, you know, like 
when a band is the biggest band in the world but is kind of like forced because of money problems to record a follow-up when they hate each other yeah it's it's successful in a way because it's one of the biggest selling albums of all time and when people think of pink floyd most people think of the wall before they think of anything else right before they think of dark side before they think of anything else um and just it it achieved what it set out to do achieve which is becoming this iconic rock musical song Opera. suite thing but yeah overall i just never got into it until recently because of just all the background baggage of it mm. it was just very sad to me that like richard wright who actually did he benefited because he was the only person to make money from the wall tour because the wall tour was so extravagantly lavish and they spent so much money on set designs and these big floating pigs and queens and shit like that that Richard Wright, because he wasn't an actual band member with money invested into the tour, he got paid as a musician. He's the only one who made money. That's amazing. Because <laughs> the, band, the band lost about a, about a million and a half, two million dollars. Yeah. Right on. Well, on that note, Luke has to uh, Luke has to go to the dentist. So goodbye, Luke. He shine just, on, you crazy diamond. Shine on, you crazy diamond. So it's just me and Jeff here. Luke has a dentist appointment. He has to go see Dr. Crentist. Uh, um, Dr. Acula. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Acula. Um, so, yeah, um, overall, yeah, like the wall. I mean, the, that's the thing that's baffling to me, too, man, is like the the just this sort of grandiose sort of like stage thing where he builds the wall piece by piece to knock it down to, you know what I mean? Like it's this whole thing. It was like this whole theatrical thing. And um, I mean, I've I've seen footage from it. Uh, just bits and pieces, just on YouTube, yeah. whatever, and you can just you can you can see how disconnected the band is from each other. Like, you know what I mean? Like it 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 the wall coming down. I think is kind of like a big metaphor just for like the band itself. Because I mean, even with the final cut, which were like the 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 songs that didn't make the wall itself, you know, there's just I don't know. That's just where things for me with Pink Floyd just get kind of wonky. Yeah, and I just don't get it because, like. The Wall was written in response to Roger Waters' awareness that becoming a big rock star was driving him crazy and making him a terrible person. So he wrote The Wall, and if you released it like Sgt. Pepper style and just put it on the world, and I was like, yeah, we did the In the Flesh tour in 1977 to support animals. It was very successful, but also it kind of turned us all against each other and made us all terrible people. Yeah. But here's our, here's our statement about that. That'd be one thing. I I guess I would get that. But to then mount this big production around it and just do more of the same is (laughs) like, that is the madness. (laughs) Like that's, that's the craziness is like, he wrote an album that was, oh man, we're trying, we're biting off more than we can chew. Well, let's, let's take three more bites. It's like, doesn't make sense. Right, right. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, like we said, you know, the, the album itself's got a lot of really, really great cuts on it stuff that i like i mean comfortably numb probably one of the most iconic guitar solos probably one of the 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 most like learned i would say you know just as like being a guitar player and just learning different solos to try to like you know get the craft out and stuff i mean comfortably numb is amazing uh similarly with another brick in the wall like you know but i mean it's got it's got its high points i mean there's a reason why if i'm you know like if you're at thanksgiving dinner and there's a kid and you're like how could you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat you know like it's like little silly things like that that you know definitely you know permeate kind of like culture yeah, it does and stuff have like some that. Of, some of their best some of their better songs i think are on this album another brick in the wall yeah part hey, t- part hey, two that's yeah. the that's the rated one hey you hey you great comfortably, song. comfortably numb 
Young Lust. Yeah, Mother. Run for Your Life, Mother. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah, Run for Your Life, yeah. I mean, yeah. there are great... Oh, sorry, Run Like Hell is what the song's called. Oh, was Run for Your Life, was that... Never mind, I'm thinking. Mm. I'm confusing it with something else, never mind. Carry on, sorry. Uh, in the Flesh, <laughs> like, there's, there's a lot of good songs on this album, and overall, it's cohesive work. I think it's very successful. Yeah. But it's also, like, it's... you. You should listen to this album all the way through. I mean, if you're picking and choosing those hit songs, do your thing, because those are great hit songs, standalone tracks. But give yourself the hour and a half to listen to this, listen to this album. It's worth a listen. Sometime. And and put set it on your Spotify if you're digitally listening, like I do most of the time. Set it to repeat all at the end, Yeah. because it's an interesting way that they do it, where the last song fades into the first song. Right. Um. So yeah, give give it a shot if you haven't listened to it or if you always thought it was just over the top and too, you know, self-important, give it give it another listen because it's worthwhile. Yeah. I'd say so. And then real quick, just to hit the final cut, I know that kind of like we were going to we were going to kind of draw the line at the wall, but I feel like the final cut's worth mentioning just because it is kind of what was left over from the wall itself. Uh it was released in 83, so a little a little while you know, later. Um, but uh, let me see here. Yeah, and this was more the storyline addressing the death of his father in World War II, which was something we didn't talk about at the top, but we could talk about now, which was we talked earlier about the very British, black and white, gray, London, you know, rainy type of environment that they grew up in. And then they kind of came of age during the psychedelic late 60s. But the wall... Um, a lot of that was also inspired by Roger Waters' feeling of abandonment and loss because his father joined the military a week after he was born mm-hmm. and then died five months later. Yeah. So he grew up in this bombed-out country that was kind of destroyed from this war, and his dad died before he even got to know him. Yeah. So he felt a lot of bitterness about that, and so that was part of the storyline of The Wall was being this orphaned person yeah. with no real father figure, no real person to... Uh, pattern his life after and the final cut just took the bulk of that storyline that was more explicitly about the wartime loss and expanded on that yeah honorable mentions for that album or at least i should say my favorite track on that album uh the fletcher memorial home um i i really dig that song i think it's got probably one of the coolest uh one of the coolest guitar solos uh on it for sure like um i'm trying to think uh yeah i mean obviously it was written by roger waters but i was i'm trying to remember whether or not that guitar solo was in fact written or was in fact performed by um uh david gilmore because i think initially like i thought that it didn't (coughs) excuse me have david gilmore on there but uh oh yeah no 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 it was him it was him, but yeah, just a, just in my opinion, just the killer guitar solo. I think it's just you know, it's all that Gilmorey goodness mm. on that album. I mean, that's definitely that's an album that like <coughs> I haven't really, I you know, I it's in terms of what I listen to for Pink Floyd, it's not you know, that's definitely not a go to album. I think it's a go to album for any Pink Floyd head, really. But yeah, and more um, for me, I almost never listen to it because David Gilmore sings like two verses on the entire album. Yeah, yeah, and again, and at going least on back, the wall, he sings on like I think. Five of yeah. the tracks, six of the tracks. Maybe. Right, right, yeah. So the final cut, it's you know, it's a little bit How of a. How could you do that but... to David Gilmore? I know he has one of the smoothest, like 
Well, he has one of my favorite voices. In I mean, music. To, to jump forward, I mean, since we're you know, since we're here talking about it, I mean, then you go on and you know they have all these like sort of like legal rights and who owns the Pink Floyd name and yeah. all that stuff, and then later on you would have. Roger Waters losing the rights to Pink Floyd, the name, and yeah. then David Gilmour getting it and just bringing Nick Mason back on with uh, Richard Wright and then doing uh, The Division Bell, which I find I, I enjoy The Division Bell. I think as a later Pink Floyd album, it show it, if you if you like a B the Some, final cut and The Division Bell, you can that is the blatantly obvious like two polarities of the like the band. You know what I mean? That's why I think like when Gilmour and Waters Waters come together. That's why their songs are so effective. But to hear the final cut and then to hear uh, the division bell, that right there is kind of like, oh, okay. So I definitely see where if you listen back, you see, okay, well, this vibe definitely came from Roger Waters. Oh, this vibe definitely came from David Gilmore because David Gilmore definitely has this sort of sweetness to his voice, the softness to his voice, really, really nice uni- use of melody and harmony and stuff where... And Roger his power Waters is more is, powerful. Roger Waters it's, is more goofy. It's and not as shrieking. Like, right. Yeah, yeah. Nails on chalkboard at times. Yeah, because that's... I'm not a huge... Vocal-wise, you know, I think we're in agreement. Like, I I don't care much for Roger Waters. But I thought the Division Bell was... I, I think it's it's one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums. I mean, I it's not at the very very top, oh, but I do right. enjoy it. Like, I enjoy it very much. Like, and, and before the Division Bell was Momentary Lapse of Reason. Yeah, which was that was just David Gilmore and Nick Mason. Ru- Richard Wright hadn't rejoined the band at that time. No. Um, and that was actually the first that was the Pink, first Pink Floyd album I listened to. Really? Because I had a stack of cassette oh, tapes in my house. I had Umaguma, Dark Side, Wish You Were Here. Momentary last of reason were the the Pink Floyd cassettes that I assume were my uncle Dan's that stayed at my grandmother's house and then some somehow made their way to my house. Oh, Bob Ezrin. Yeah, he was one of the co-producers on Momentary oh, Lapse of Reason. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah I, this Learning to Fly. Yeah, I'm just not. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. The way I thought about things when I was a teenager, I still like hold on to that. But everything after Final Cut to me, it's just like old man music. Yeah, I don't know. It's like it's like okay, yeah. boomer. I feel. Like, I, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> I but it, it kind of is. It's yeah. it doesn't have it. It doesn't have any of the youthful drive and the funkiness. Like there's yeah. still a funkiness to, you to can, Pink Floyd. Would in you mid, say that maybe 70s. you can hear like a sense of exhaustion in the music? Like it's kind of like we've done. It's run its course. Yeah, it sounds we've done everything. Yeah, overwrought and yeah. You know. And I know David Gilmore and I. And, for me personally, I'm way more David Gilmore than I am Roger Waters, but I do know that when it comes to lyrics, uh, David Gilmore is not much for a lyricist. I I want to say that there were many, there were several occasions where he used kind of like a, some sort of a lyric generator computer where he would like oh, you, where you could like type in something. I, I think I had seen something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to Division Bell and then and then you kind of like make that cross over to the solo David Gilmore stuff. Not like the first couple albums, but uh, more specifically like the... The late 90s. Yeah, or the album that came out, I want to say it was like Mm. 2006-ish, On an Island. That oh sure you know that that definitely you can kind of hear all right yeah this is the Gilmore thing and then like let's be real I mean there's a reason why you know Richard Wright and Nick Mason followed David Gilmore after the whole fiasco rather than Roger Waters you know but I do have that DVD the one I let you borrow the On an Island what's interesting is that uh, there's a, a disc that comes with it that's like the making of and what's so weird is that while they are uh. They, you know, they have like a they rented out a studio to do the whole like performance to rehearse it and stuff. Uh, 
that on the same lot there was another sound studio that Roger Waters was right, rehearsing right. with his band. You know, so there's like this awkward sort of scene where they like talk to each other and they're like, yeah, so what are you doing? Oh, well, what are you doing? You know, kind of thing. It's kind of like weird and awkward. Roger Waters is very much at this point, especially is he's, you know, he's doing the Roger Waters presents the wall, you know, so yeah. that was kind of his, you know, he kind of just wrote on the curtails of that, uh, or the coattails of the, uh, of the wall, you know, um, but uh, but yeah, I just I don't know. I think that the Gilmore approach to songwriting is one that I enjoy more. Although I will say that I think that the in terms of substance lyrically, that Roger Waters brought more to the table. I just didn't care much for his ear for the music or like the or I should say later on because earlier stuff. Yeah, of course the Roger Waters stuff I like, but um, it's just got yeah, it just got weird for me with Roger Waters. And like we said, like I just don't like his voice. You know? Yeah, I, just, I don't want shit on Roger Waters because he was the driving force of Pink Floyd. But, yeah, as a singer, first and foremost, personally, I just, I'm much more drawn to David Gilmour's work. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's mellow and powerful, and it's round and warm, yeah. and I get it that maybe the Roger Waters singing actually works better on the wall, because it's his personal story, and also it is a story about a guy going into madness, and it sounds that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Respect to Roger Waters for being the driving force, but he drove the band to success, and then like it sounds like pretty quickly he drove them all away. And yeah, it's like no, no, I am this band. Fuck you guys. Right, right. So that, right. the egos just got way blown up. Yeah, and and I just think about like what if, what if, yeah, just what if, man. Yeah. What if things had been going better and they could have made you know three more albums in the eighties yeah. together. And I wouldn't be thinking about their that period as like old man music. Like may, it maybe yeah. I don't know. Well, I think the thing is, is like knowing the role that Roger Waters played in the band. It's one of those things where you're like, you know, I, you know, he. It's I mean, he's a person, right? There's layers, right, like right. that, you know, whatever. But like just kind of hearing like the douchebaggery of it, like yeah. him just kind of being like, yeah, fuck you guys, like this is my thing, like fuck you, you're just hired, you're just like the hired help you know like this is all me where like, by all accounts every other member of the band was just like okay thank you like yeah, very right, right, right. spoken <laughs> yeah. and just like kind of went along with it so maybe that was a problem yeah like, maybe when you have one guy who is taking the steering wheel and the other guys are just like well okay yeah maybe that's what kind of yeah. feeds into it I don't but know. it all eventually came to but i wasn't part of the band anyway, so i don't know. know what it was like. yeah right right it sounded right. like richard wright put up a fight and wanted more say yeah but uh, i don't know i don't you got you know i've read tons of things about it but i think it was a case of during the wall especially that roger waters had a clear idea what he wanted for these songs and richard wright didn't want to play those things yeah so he kind of like just chilled in the studio and just kind of let everything happen and then four months into the process roger waters like all right well dude you aren't doing things so get the fuck out of here yeah i don't know yeah it sucks, but uh, and then it. Since we have the time now, you know, we'll touch on it and just to say that, like, uh, we talked we talked about it before, but then like the Endless River 2014 release, mm-hmm. which was just pretty much just David Gilmore kind of writing some music around all the previously recorded stuff that Richard Wright had recorded throughout he had the died entire by that career. Point, I think. Yeah, he had yeah. passed by that point. Like I think a year he, or two earlier. I, yeah, I think he yeah. died shortly after the uh, the On an Island uh, tour, which that famously, there's the Royal Albert Hall, that was the DVD, and then I think another DVD was uh, Live in Dansk. Gdansk? Yes. Um, so yeah, shortly thereafter, he passed away. Shout out to Mike Schiraldi. He let me take that off of his external hard drive. 
<laughs> Thanks, Mike. Uh, he, he's a huge David Gilmore fan. Yeah. See, like, and that's... La- later period, the you know the layers of acoustic guitars and slide guitars and stuff like that. It's not really my thing, but. If I'm putting on background music, it's great background music. Yeah, like I thought Island Island was a great album. I mean, even a flashback to I think it was like 73, 72, 73, there was the solo David Gilmore album right. uh, that, um, I mean, I, There's No Way Out of Here, I think is the name of like one of the more popular tracks on that, uh, one of the more popular cuts on that album. Uh, I like that one. Um, there was another one that came out. I think it's something like on my way or way out or something like that, where it's like him in like a leather jacket, like looking off and like pointing his finger. I didn't care much for that album. Um, I think that, uh, Gilmore didn't, I don't know. I feel like the 80s sound Gilmore didn't really meld well with the 80s sound as I don't think he was as effective with it as say maybe Roger Waters was. Mm. Uh, but yeah, on an Island was cool, was cool. And then I want to say the latest release from David Gilmore, I think it is called rattle that lock. I know that was the single off of the album. I don't know if that's the name of the album itself, but also, you know, a pretty cool album worth listening to. I think, I mean, it's not my favorite. It's definitely like, you know, all right. (laughs) If you, if you had to talk, so talk about David Gilmore, if you, you know, guitarist to guitarist, where does he fit for you as far as your list of guitarists? I mean, I think he's easily top five. What I love about David Gilmore as a guitar player is the fact that, Yes, he can take like a ripping solo. Um, however, I think especially in the earlier days of Floyd, like especially the classic period, uh, he knew where to sit in the mix. Mm. He wasn't, you know, like that's the thing is like it's the same. It's the same thing as like the BB King effect where it's like, yeah, you have these guitar players who can play how many notes in one measure. But can you can you hold one note and really like just tear somebody down with one single note? And Gilmore can do it. I mean, that's the as a guitar player trying to learn how to play Gilmore, the thing that I found was it didn't really like in terms of my 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 um the the the, the technique that I learned from trying to learn how to play David Gilmore solos, it was all feel technique. It's all because that's the thing. It's like you can play the notes, right. but can you how effectively can you play them? And that's the hardest part of Gilmore sound that's that's most difficult to emulate is the the feel that he has behind like it's in the fingers with him and all day it's it's in the fingers and then tone too like he i feel like he really mastered like the fuzz because i feel like with fuzz it's either like now present day if we're looking back like fuzz was either like that like exploding amp sound that you got from say uh jimmy hendrix that kind of uh, I can't get no satisfaction Pete kind Townsend of like zzz, of like yeah. buzzy kind of thing you are, or like the Pete Townsend thing or flash forward to present day much more of that kind of like uh, maybe like college radio station fuzz rock that you'd get maybe like a Jeff the Brotherhood something like that yeah. that utilizes fuzz in that way or like the Jay Maskus like uh, Dinosaur Jr. kind of thing uh, but with him he I feel like he really like dialed in like the fuzz tone in a unique way that it's like, oh, yeah, that is fuzz, isn't it? Because if you as if you if you're a guitar player, you know the difference between like distortion, gain, overdrive, fuzz. Like these are all like driving kind of effects that you can uh, have on your guitar tone. Uh, and fuzz is like the the beast you have to tame because fuzz can go so wrong so quick with the saturation and the tone and everything like that. So uh, and famously uh gilmore uh the big muff 
fuzz that was kind of his go-to fuzz too which at the time i mean yeah people used big muffs and stuff but uh but hendrix was a fuzz face guy you know there were different versions of fuzz whether it was like a silicone or like uh i forget what the other material used to like to to craft the pedal itself and stuff but um but yeah i mean he used a lot of modulated fuzz sounds too right like he used chorus rack effects he used flanger he used phaser so it gives more more dimensions to the sound instead of just a single note being fuzzed out it's like taking three different yeah. notes and kind of fuzzing them all together and the bends too like yeah the king of smooth bends yeah i, I played i played pink bends. floyd stuff i playing i've been playing guitar for 20 years when i play, when i try to play a pink floyd stuff i sound like i picked up a guitar two years ago because i just right. can't the bends like, are I try, so hard to get i try right. but <laughs> i know it's so smooth because it's that it. it's like that weird middle place between like the 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 note trying to like when he goes for the bend it sounds like it's this like crawling trying to get to yeah, this note coming up through the mud yeah. but the thing is is that it's just done it's done with like so much like finesse i could mm. you could say that it's like it's that perfect blend so it's like it's that perfect blend between the sound wise between a master guitar player doing a bend and like a beginner doing a bend, yeah. you know, especially if you listen to his solo in Adam Hart mother sweet if you listen to his solo in like with metal, like he's doing some bends and even like some are uh, the, the uh, solo in childhood's end. Like he does some bends in that where it's like, ugh, it's like gut wrenching almost. Yeah. And like clean and, and some of them really clean tone too. Like not really like the, what you would come to find in like time where it's like the super saturated fuzzed out tone. You know, childhood to end. In contrast, is very much a clean guitar, just a little bit of overdrive. You know, so yeah, the King of Bends. Um, I mean, we touched on Nick Mason. We touched on Roger Waters with the P bass sound, like that really nice hard bopping kind of sound. Yeah. Uh, and then Richard Wright, of course, a, oh, a, ma- a master keyboardist and an organist in his own right too. Like, I feel like people sleep on him as an organ player. Like, I mean, I feel like. Uh, organ players that get a lot of the credit is like um uh from yes what the heck's his name uh why am i blanking on his name now he wore the cape from yeah yes. i know i know what oh come saying. on what the hell is his name i feel like a chump now because we've we've covered yes so many times uh but rick, anyway rick wakefield rick wakeman wakeman rick wakeman or like the john lord rick springfield rick springfield <laughs> <laughs> rick wakeman close close <laughs> rick wakeman uh uh, yeah, and like uh, maybe a Steve Winwood gets credit for like being a pretty good organ player, and then like say uh, John Lord from Deep Purple gets a lot of credit yeah. for being an organ player of the time, you know, or, or uh, uh, Ray Manzarek from The Doors, you know. But I think uh, Rick Rick White Wright did so much. He, I mean, like I said, yeah, the, yeah man. the Fender Rhodes sounds, the the Hammond organ, the the clavinet on some of the Animal tracks. Um, just funky man like just the atmospheric sounds that he was able to achieve too just kind of yeah. like these like soaked in delay and reverb kind yeah. of like just sound floating above everything that's the thing i like most about floyd too is like they're like that it, it's like his keyboards just fill this void that you mm-hmm. didn't even know was there you know right what would they sound like without everyone talks about david gilmore but what would pink floyd sound like without the keyboards it's like i think they would have suffered big time yeah I think Richard Wright was such a contribution to that band that that's the key you know. to the to the tribute bands. When I see a Pink Floyd tribute band, yeah, okay, the guy's doing the David Gilmore parts cool. If the keyboard player is subpar, it's so apparent. Right. Because it t- takes the entire mood of the song and changes it completely. Right, right, right. And that Shout out to Echoes of Floyd. That dude 
I think they're based in Maine. I saw them in Maine, so I think they're based up there. Um, but that that keyboard player for that group did a hell of a job. Yeah. And I don't know what he was playing on. He might have been playing through like a Nord Stage Three that just has a million sounds on it. But he did a great job covering that that terrain because I think it's difficult to yeah. emulate those sounds. And also Richard Wright making a contribution vocally too because right, he would do right. a lot of those harmonies with the guys and stuff too. Us you know what I mean? And, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the one, not not to draw too much of a weird comparison here, but it's in the same way that um, oh, Michael Anthony and Van Halen, like people oh, didn't sure. really know that Michael Anthony was doing all those crazy vocals in yeah. the background, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like Richard Wright, likewise, like he, he was such a contribution to the band. And that, I think, for me, when I was really diving deep into mm-hmm. the lore of Pink Floyd to see the way that he was treated by Roger Waters... So disappointing. It was just so disappointing just because it's like, yeah, Roger Waters, like, yeah, man, like, right on, but just, like, get it together, man. Like, hone it in because, like, you have some of the best guys with you. Like, why are you going to push them away? But, again, money, fame, success, ego, like, all that stuff, you can't avoid that, the human element with the, you know, with the music. Especially when your beginnings are as, like, an experimental psychedelic blues band, and then fast forward not even, like, six years later and you're the biggest band in the world. It's a very different thing, because you were. Pl- yeah. I'm sure that they were playing for audiences of 50 fucking people who were kind of just staring, stand there and staring at them. Yeah. And then within five, six years, they're playing for screaming teenagers and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure that was just clearly it didn't. Clearly, it didn't yeah. really help things. Well, I've, as far I've, as the 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 relationships with the band. Members. Yeah, and the financial stresses and all yeah. that stuff. I mean, I can't even imagine how expensive a show got once they got to the stadium circuit like that i mean that i mean you know i just think about you know like the risers and the this and that and the pyrotechnics and the and 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 the the giant inflatable pig that they would like zoom through overhead the crowd and like you know what i mean like what's our pig budget (laughs) (laughs) yeah right like i mean like how much do you think that fucking pig costs it's probably like a fifty thousand dollar inflatable but you know like i mean i'm speculating here i don't know it probably got popped every single show i bet some jackass with a lighter like flicked it up yeah right right and just the big burst (laughs) you know but uh, but yeah, so there it is on Pink Floyd. If you if you could pick three three Pink Floyd albums to take with you on Desert Island, what would you pick? Uh, we can we can put in Luke's picks afterwards. We can yeah do a digital magic. Yeah, um, I would say no order. Just pick three. No particular order. Yeah, Dark Side for sure. I mean, Dark Side's got to go in there. Uh, and then the rest, it's kind of tough. Like I, I like the other albums for very specific reasons. Um, but I mean, Desert Island. If we're talking Desert Island, I mean, I would probably say, yeah, Dark Side. Wish you were here. Maybe I would just do Dark Side. Wish you were here in Animals. Yeah, you know, I just just to be just to be safe, you know, because there's tracks on Metal, there's tracks on Obscure by Clouds, there's tracks on Adam Hart Mother. Although I absolutely love those albums, mm-hmm. there's tracks on there that I don't really enjoy very much. Whereas I feel like the other three I can listen to front to back and enjoy pretty much the entire album. I mean, of all of that. Of those three, uh, I think maybe, like I said earlier, Welcome to the Machine, not my favorite song, but I think the yeah. rest of Wish You Were Here is just such a striking album and so successful that uh, that that I'd probably go with those three. So how about you? Um, I, my three would be Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and I'd probably choose The Wall because although if I was on a desert island and somehow I had some way to play these albums... You would want a soundtrack while you're slipping into your madness? Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Being on a desert uh, island, just like losing well, your fucking mind. Well, like I would, I would probably after a while not listen to like ten of the to ten to fifteen of the songs. Yeah, but like ten to fifteen of them, I really do like. Mm-hmm. And I like animals as well, 
but animals is 30 minutes of music and so maybe I'd just, oh. I'd, pay, I'd, I'd, I'd hmm. not 30, but it's like 45 minutes. But what music. I'm saying, yeah. But I would probably choose the wall because just cumulatively, like I probably would listen to about 60 minutes of that. Right. I don't know. It's like maybe Desert Island books, like you pick a longer book rather than a shorter book. Right, Because exactly. it's like, well, I'm here for the rest of my exactly. life. So, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you exactly. know what? Maybe That's I'll what redact I mean. that. So maybe, maybe maybe I would go with a, uh, maybe I'd go with uh, The Wall as well, just mm. for just for uh, volume of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of music, you know, than that way. Yeah. So yeah, right on. So yeah, we'll have to ask Luke and see when uh, whenever we whenever we see him next to uh, to let us know what the thing is. Maybe we'll just post it up on our Instagram. Just give you our three. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna say he'd say Dark Side of the Moon. Yep. What's the first one called? Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the third on. one. Yeah. I would if I'm if I was a betting man, I would say Umaguma or. Maybe more. I would go earlier with the yeah, with the yeah, third yeah. pick because I don't think he's a huge fan of like the middle period stuff, the arena rock, or yeah. like the later stuff either. You know, I yeah, think. Yeah. Uh, but maybe wish you were here. He might go wish you were. Oh no, actually, because he said, he said, said earlier that favorite. was like his least favorite. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Very surprising. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have but to ask him. Either way, we'll have to ask him. Anyway, shine on, crazy diamonds. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. We love you guys. Don't forget to uh, give us likes, follow, subscribes on all. Uh, listen to Pink Floyd. They got like fifteen albums. Yeah, and listen to Pink Floyd, guys. I mean, they're one of the greatest. It's a rainy day today. Perfect day to put it on. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, shine on you crazy diamonds <laughs> we love you guys we'll see you next time wish you were here wish you were here thanks for tuning in everyone uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it make sure to share like and subscribe to the get in the garage podcast now available on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts. Uh, and a bunch more. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram or email us directly at getinthegaragepodcast at gmail.com for any questions or topics you might like to hear us cover. Thanks again, guys. See you next time. Get in the garage.